And as you sit this morning, if you would turn to me with me to Psalm 50. Psalm 50. morning we are going to be considering specifically verses 7 through 15, but I would like to read beginning in verse 1 for context. Before we hear the reading and preaching of God's word, join me again in prayer. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this word that we have before us this morning, your holy word. Your inspired word, your inerrant and infallible word, the word that we can and must stand upon, the word that we can and must believe on with our whole heart. And so, Lord, we pray for your spirit's work in and through us to open our understanding. And Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Well, Psalm 50, beginning in verse 1, hear now the very word of God written for you and for me today. A psalm of Asaph, the mighty one, God the Lord, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its going down. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. Our God shall come and shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous all around him. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather my saints together to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Let the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your house, nor goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine in all its fullness. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word to us. Well, beloved, over the next few weeks, we are going to pause our study of 1 Corinthians and consider the matter of stewardship in Christ's church. All Christians are called to be good and faithful stewards. But what does this mean? How should we rightly do so? Well, put simply, the concept of stewardship is focused on and is evident in the details 
of how God teaches us in the Scripture that we should be servants of Christ. Jesus guides us in his word as to how we as servants are to manage the resources that God has graciously given us and placed in our care and oversight. And further, some of you may be aware that how we use our resources is the subject of economics. And biblically speaking, it's the main focus of stewardship. And how is that so? Well, the Greek word oikonomia is where we get the word economics and economy from. And it's made up of two parts, oikos, which is the word for house or household, and namos, which is the word for law. And so, so oikos and namos together literally mean house law. The English word that translates the word economia is the English word stewardship. And so stewardship and economics are closely related concepts. A steward in the ancient world was a person who was given the responsibility and the authority to rule over the affairs of the household. For example, in Genesis 39, we see Joseph became a steward over Potiphar's household. And in that role, he managed everything in the household and was given the authority to rule over the house. Joseph was responsible for managing the household well, as well. He wasn't to squander it. He wasn't to manage it poorly. He would have come under severe consequence if he did so. But he was to make wise decisions and not waste the resources of the family. A steward in the modern world today is no different. Wonderfully, we, we find the principle of stewardship that it doesn't start in the latter chapters of Genesis, but is rather rooted from the beginning. Consider the foundation for stewardship in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so in the dominion mandate, my friends, we find Adam and Eve commanded to be fruitful and multiply. And this was a command to govern, to oversee, and, and to prosper, which has stewardship applications and implications. And thus, stewardship is rooted in creation. Now, another important concept to understand in considering stewardship is that the role of the steward points to and necessitates the presence of a Lord and Master. And that Lord and Master is the owner of the resources that the steward has been entrusted with. And in our text this morning, in Psalm 50, we find the living triune God is the grand owner. And let's consider his being God and our God in verse 7. The reality that everything is his in verses 8 through 12. 
And Asaph's words regarding thanksgiving, worship, and deliverance in verses 13 through 15. And so in verse 7, God says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Now, having just declared himself to be the covenant Lord, the righteous judge of Israel in verses 5 and 6, God goes on here within the context of covenant in verse 7 to say that as the one who has summoned them into his divine courtroom, he is their sovereign Lord. And he put his people on trial for what? very common sin against God for their covenant unfaithfulness. The righteous covenant God could and would justly declare his people's sin to them. Now when God's people sin, it's often due to our forgetting his sovereign ownership of us or our rebellion against it. We may not have forgotten. We may know it well. But we may just not like it, having been tempted to go and turn our backs against him. And so there comes a time when the Lord will speak, he says here. And when God speaks, see how he calls his people to hear. God doesn't just go and, and sound on the megaphone, a divine megaphone, so to speak. Listen to me, my people, right, and hope that they may have some ear open, one of their ears open, or uh, that they may be uh, in a place where they can listen or to hear them, to hear him. No, he calls his people to hear, right? Hear, O oh my people, and I will speak. And so therefore, what is true? As children of the Most High, we must listen. When God speaks, his people must listen. And this is true especially when God comes with just complaints and chastening, we see here. And therefore, because covenants were legal instruments, similar to a legal contract, the covenant Lord came to testify and to make his case against his covenant people. In fact, through many of the prophets, he came time and again saying, I am your God, and you are my people. Now remember the complaint that God brought against uh, uh, his people through Micah in that divine trial. If you consider Micah 6, verses 1 through 8, you can turn with me there if you'd like. Micah 6, verses 1 through 8. We read there, hear now what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let your hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint, and you strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a complaint against his people. He will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Testify against me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. 
And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, he says in verse 5. Remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Achaia, from Achaia to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Notice verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. My friends, the truth is that no one can have a legitimate case against God. No one can have a legitimate case against God. Again, we see the Lord say, testify against me. What have I done to you, O Israel? As if he had done anything that they could complain against, which he did not. They had no case because he is the perfect and holy God and has always and could do nothing else but do right towards them and for them. And so even as no one can have a legitimate case against God, God is our sovereign Lord has shown us what is good. He asks these questions through Micah. He asks these questions. And then he shows us what is good. We were, we're reminded as to what the goodness of God is and what he has given us, the commands that he has given us in light of these things. And that goodness is displayed in his righteous requirements of us. In obedience. What does he require of us? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Again, ownership. He is God. Our God. And therefore, we are obliged and obligated to obey him. But God goes on to say that there's good reason to hear his face and to know that he is our God, going back to Psalm 50. Look at verse 8. I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. Beloved, the people's problem wasn't that they were being unfaithful and offering sacrifices to God. In fact, many scholars would argue that they were offering more than they were commanded to. However, they didn't understand their significance. They were going through the ritual, but lacked the heart. What was their understanding then? Well, Israel thought that their constant sacrifices would remove their sinful neglect of other commands in God's law. They thought that their constant sacrifices made God indebted to them as they kept the priests busy and satisfied as they thought that they were going above and beyond 
the call to give God what he would like. But note that, that this was a mindset that was common in the surrounding Gentile nations. Israel had been influenced by this, where Gentiles thought that their gods consumed the sacrifices and then became hungry when they weren't being offered as frequently. But yet this wasn't how God operated. And God was telling them this. Let's be clear about this, he said. I will not take a bull, verse 9, from your house, nor goats out of your folds. Well, why? Because God wasn't like the people's perception of their false gods. He had no need for them. They didn't please him. He desired something better, something more. In his prayer in Psalm 69, King David spoke to this. In Psalm 69, verses 29 through 31, he said, But I am poor and sorrowful. Let your salvation, O God, set me up on high. I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. This also shall please the Lord. What and how? Better than an ox or bull, which has horns and hooves. Beloved, we'll consider Thanksgiving here more in a moment. But notice David's words then. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bull. But there is another reason that God wouldn't take their animals. And he lays this out in verses 10 through 12. That, that reason is that everything is already his. Everything is already his. He says, for the beast of the forest is mine. And the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the, the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all its fullness. Now, this truth really needs to sink into our, our minds and our hearts today. And we'll see the connections here with stewardship a bit later. But this is our sovereign Lord. This is God, our God. He is the owner of all that is. He is the creator of all the dead. All the creatures of the world, there's nothing that doesn't belong to him. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And as Caleb mentioned in Sunday school this morning, it's not that that ownership then stops at a thousand and one. And that everything beyond a thousand and one and all the rest of those hills across the globe, well, he doesn't own those. No. He owns everything. He owns Cattle on a thousand hills, there is no creature or part of his creation that he doesn't know. It's mine, it's mine, it's mine, he says. The world is his in all of its fullness. No one can just contest God, can justly contest God's dominion over it and over them all. 
consider the wonderful words and, and the wonder of his sovereign dominion in Psalm 104, verses 24 through 30. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. The great and wide sea in which are innumerable teeming things, living things, both small and great. There are the ships that sail about. There is that Leviathan, which you have made to play there. These all wait for you, that you may give them their food in due season. What you give them, they gather in. You open your hand, and they are filled with good. You hide your face, and they are troubled. You take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. You send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. Man, what a powerful passage. What an expansive passage in truth about the work of God in and through and over everything. Thomas Brooks said this, and I think it's helpful. I am his by purchase, and I am his by conquest. I am his by donation, and I am his by election. I am his by covenant, and I am his by marriage. I am wholly his. I am peculiarly his. I am universally his. I am eternally his. Oh, praise the Lord. God's people, they're eternally His. This great God that owns everything. The great God that created everything, that is at work in everything, that sustains everything, that gives life, that ends life. We are His. It is good to belong to the living God. And as we grasp his ownership of everything more and more, even as he makes his legal case against his people in Psalm 50, we also see God's abundant mercy as he calls and summons them. He summons them to praise and worship and to give thanks to him. Look at verse 13 in Psalm 50. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? No. God neither, neither ate the sacrifices nor was he satisfied with them apart from sincere worship and thanksgiving. And this is his call. Look at verse 14. Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in your day of trouble and I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. You know, when Nathan confronted David about his sin in Psalm 51, in verses 15 through 17, David said, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, of broken and a contrite heart, 
These, O God, you will not despise. Beloved, we must be like David. Even being confronted by our sin, we must be like him and be focused on what God desires and delights in. Though Israel offered their sacrifices, God desired more than ritual. He desired their hearts in devotion, in prayer, and in worship to him. This is what the God that owns all wants from his people. And what did God promise if his people would once again call upon him in their trouble? He wouldn't just leave them out in the cold. He wouldn't leave them under his thumb and under his hand and his heavy hand of judgment. He promised deliverance. God wouldn't leave them under his hand. He would rather extend mercy and rescue. And having delivered them, what would his people do? His people would do what he created them to do, to give him glory. Which is what he desires. What is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. He delivers and his people glorify him. You know, here the the gospel is beautifully set before us. We have been wonderfully delivered from sin and death by Jesus Christ, though his case was heavy against us. We were dead in sin before the holy God, rightly condemned. But yet we have been wonderfully delivered from sin and death by Christ. When we repent and we turn from our sins unto Jesus, he delivers us and we praise him and we glorify him. For he is God. We know who he is. We have our eyes open to see who he is. As the sovereign Lord, as the high king of heaven, as the Savior who is merciful and compassionate and kind and condescends to his people who should not recipients of his mercy. He has no obligation to be merciful to us. He's come in our day of trouble. He has come to rescue us, to take us out of the grave. And to give us and to bring us to new life. So even as we are now in him, as he is at work in us by his spirit, he calls us, even in our days of trouble, to come to repent of our sins, to turn to Christ. And what does he promise? Aid, help, rescue, deliverance. writer to the Hebrews in chapter 13 verse 15 said this therefore by him 
let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Just as he called Israel to offer thanksgiving to him, we have the same command and call from God. The sacrifice of praise. The sacrifice of praise is what the living God and our God is pleased to receive from his people. This fruit of our lips. May we daily be committed to that, beloved. I'll leave you with this. Considering all of these things, a large fault of ours is that we are often tempted to give in to thinking that God is like us. People are too often satisfied with going through the religious motions. Maybe some of you are here today thinking, you know what, I'm going to go to church here today. I'm going to come and I'm going to do my duty. But it's really just duty. My heart is not in it. But hear the call of God. If you do not know God, you do not know Christ as your Savior, the call to you is to turn to Him. Repent of your sins. Turn to Christ for mercy and salvation that you would indeed give this sacrifice of praise from your lips with a whole heart. And for those of us who are in Christ here today, it is the call to God to not go through the motions. And if we are to repent of that, because that's not what God wants. God wants your heart. And he is at work in you. He desires your whole heart. Not half-hearted worship. We must not go forward assuming that God would be satisfied with just ritual. However, rituals done, even those activities and practices that are commanded by God, they mean nothing apart, they mean nothing to Him apart from the genuine heart of praise and adoration and obedience. If we truly see and know God to be our God, beloved, the owner of all that is, if that truly sinks in, it has to affect our lives. It can't but affect our lives. Right? We know him to be as Asaph described in the first six verses of this psalm. To be the God of power, the God of authority, the God of glory, the God of wrath, the God of righteousness, and the God of faithfulness. Of covenant faithfulness. Again, whereas God's people... We fall and be covenantly unfaithful, but God never does that. For He is always and eternally will be covenantly faithful. This is the God whom we serve. And so therefore, if we realize that and our, our eyes are opened by the Spirit to understand these things, our thoughts will lead us to worship Him wholeheartedly in spirit and in truth. And so being mindful that everything belongs to our God, the creator and the owner of all that is, is a great place to start in considering how we then ought to manage and to handle all that we have been given as stewards.
Don't miss or forget that you are called to be a steward of the living God. He has given much to you, many gifts. But we all are called to use those gifts wisely, those resources wisely. To use those gifts as he calls us to. To be a blessing, to be an encouragement, to lift up, to further, to edify others in the cause of Christ. And we'll consider this more in the next couple of weeks. Right? Be encouraged, but also be convicted. And have much joy in the God who is your God, who owns all that is, and everything is his. Amen. Praise God for his word. Let's pray to him.